your high school experience was anything like mine, it involved learning and accepting the dominant narrative that Abraham Lincoln and the Union Army freed the slaves without any mention, really, of enslaved people themselves. It wasn't until college, in reading Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois, that I encountered a history that centered enslaved people in the story of their own emancipation. Du Bois argued that the slaves freed themselves, which put them at the center of the story of the Civil War, and American history more generally, in ensuring that America more fully realized its democratic ideals. This is a powerful history that deserves to be told. Enter We the Black People, an American history podcast where every episode I will be discussing and rediscovering these often misunderstood or ignored parts of American history with black actors at the center, mostly with experts and friends. And in the end, I'm always looking at how a more inclusive history informs America's present and could possibly shape our future. Today we're starting in 1935 with Du Bois' ideas about slave emancipation and his concept of the general strike, along with his theory about the propaganda of history and why the narrative of Lincoln and the North as the great emancipators persisted in his day and likely why it still persists today. Then, most of the episode will be my conversation with Professor David Williams, who studied slave self-emancipation to write his book, I Freed Myself. So what is the general strike? Well, before it was a hashtag, the general strike was Du Bois' argument that black labor directed and determined the outcome of the Civil War. He first makes this point by by showing that the Union Army did not go into war with the intention of freeing slaves, and that in the beginning of the war, slaves could not just have one violent uprising against their masters. So instead, as the Union Army went south, they saw this as their opportunity to ensure their own freedom. So many fled plantations to run towards Union lines, and those who couldn't flee their plantations stopped working. And this open rebellion and disruption of the southern economy led the south to its inevitable surrender in the North, to ensuring the rights of the hundreds of thousands of slaves who ran into their ranks. Specifically, Du Bois notes, and scholars of this day also agree with his numbers, that about 200,000 soldiers in the Union Army were black, and about at least 80% of them were former slaves, and about 500,000, half a million former slaves fled into the Union during the Civil War. Seeing this evidence, Du Bois concludes his book by examining how historians could continuously ignore these numbers and this history. His conclusion is that it is part of the propaganda of history to retell a more palatable history of America, a history that makes the Union Army, the Great Emancipators, the South as defenders of their own liberty against Northern tyranny rather than defenders of the continued enslavement of an entire race of people. This leaves black people to be ignored in the telling of this history. His other reasoning for why this history was so ignored was because he believed that white scholars could not see black people as humans or equals. Disbelief meant that white scholars also could not imagine black Americans as drivers of American progress. And now I would like to introduce Professor David Williams. 
He's a retired professor of history of 30 years at Valdosta State University in Georgia and the author of the book I Freed Myself, a book he will tell you is a synthesis of earlier ideas from the 80s and 90s and even well before that, not a presentation of a radically new idea. This book aims to do two things. The first is to show that African Americans were not just sitting back waiting to be freed, uh, either in the North or in the South. Quite the contrary, particularly in the, uh, in the South. Eighty years after Du Bois, he still had to counter the dominant narrative that Black folk were the only people in the world who never contributed an ounce to their own freedom, that they just sat around and twang banjos and picked cotton and waited for the Union Army to come along and free them. Another huge point that I, that I try to make uh, in the book is that early in the war, it's not the policy of the Lincoln administration to emancipate slaves. In fact, to try to head off the war, uh, there were Northern congressmen, even before Lincoln took office in March of 1861, in January and February of 1861, Congress passed a constitutional amendment and sent it out to the states for ratification promising the South that they could have slavery forever if they would just stop this secession nonsense and, uh, and come back into the Union. In his inaugural address, uh, Lincoln supported that amendment, saying, look, we'll add a 13th Amendment to the Constitution, saying you can keep slavery forever if you want to, just come back into the Union. You heard that right. The Union, when faced with the prospect of Southern secession and forming of its own government, was willing to make the 13th Amendment guarantee slavery forever rather than end it as the 13th Amendment did end up doing a few years later. And this wasn't just the opinion of the Union government. Northerners generally, though they did not want slavery in the North, they were pro-keeping slavery in the South because it kept. You know, Four million African Americans, and that was the bulk of the African American population, trapped in the South. That benefited Northerners both for racist reasons and because they didn't want increased competition for already low-paying factory jobs. In fact, most white Northerners hoped to move west and become farmers, and they also didn't want to see blacks, either free or slaves, when they got there. It, it, it's, it's kind of strange to say, to say that uh, white Northerners both, in a, in a general sense, oppose slavery and supported slavery at the same time. To understand how the Union went from willing to ensure slavery forever in the South, to not only ending slavery, but ensuring citizenship and the right to vote for Black Americans, requires looking at how Black action influenced Union action during and after the war. Our story begins in 1861. The Confederacy has left... The Union, yet the war does not start until shots are fired at Fort Sumter, and the Union has a cause to rally behind, and that is to defend the flag against the Confederates who would dare to fire. At this point, Lincoln has explicitly stated that the Union Army is not going south to free slaves, which means that it's up to slaves themselves to make the first move. Professor Williams puts it this way. African Americans, uh, enslaved African Americans in the South, are making this a freedom war, uh, regardless of Lincoln's policy. 
Uh, they flee by the tens of thousands to Union camps. And it's the policy of the Union Army at the direction of Lincoln that slaves are to go back to their owners, that uh, they're not to be accepted into, uh, into, into camps. And so Union commanders, when enslaved folk show up, when these refugees from slavery show up at the camps, uh, particularly at, uh, this really get, gets its start at uh, Fort, uh, Fortress Monroe in Virginia, Ben Butler, General Ben Butler, tells uh, these escaped refugees, we don't want you. Go back. You're not free. We're not here to free you. This policy presents a logistical problem, both because slaves aren't going back and because the Confederate Army is between the Union Army and the plantations these slaves came from, so the Union Army itself cannot return the slaves. Faced with this problem, the Union is forced to change its policy, but not yet to free slaves. Instead, the Union Army called them contraband. Simon Cameron, who was Lincoln's uh, Secretary of War, says, well, let's call them contraband of war. Rather than sending them back to uh, be used against the Union Army, uh, building fortifications and, and, and feeding the Confederate Army, let's use them to work on fortifications, uh, do camp work ourselves. The idea was not to free the slaves, but rather to make legal what was already happening in many Union camps where escaped slaves were being put to work for the Union Army. So, In the, in, uh, the summer of 1861, uh, the, uh, the Congress passes what was called the First Confiscation Act, defining slaves as contraband of war, but not ending slavery. Though escaped slaves thought they were free, the Union government insisted that being contrabands of war, they were to be returned as soon as possible. Yet this did not stop an incredibly large number of slaves from flooding Union lines and declaring themselves free. Yeah, there was the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Through the course of the war, it was at least half a million, maybe more. Uh, we're not really, we don't really have firm figures on that. Uh, but best estimates tend to put it at a, at least half a million, probably more. In response to so many escaped slaves flooding Union camps, some Army officers, including future President Ulysses Grant, came up with an idea to send escaped slaves north. These officers wanted to send escaped slaves north to set them up with jobs in cities like New York or Chicago or Boston. This plan did not go well, as most northern whites instead insisted that they stay in Union camps. Meanwhile, Washington, D.C. had become a war zone. Another thing that was going on was that uh, a lot of uh, African-Americans were fleeing to Washington, D.C. itself, which was prompting slave catchers to go into Washington and basically make it a war zone. Uh, Washington, was Washington, D.C. was becoming a war zone between escaping slaves and slave catchers. And Congress tried to put an end to that in uh, the spring of 1862 by just ending slavery in the District of Columbia. Lincoln was a little bit reluctant about that because of the message it would send to slave owners, particularly in the border state. Quick pause. What are the border states? States like Missouri, Kentucky, 
Maryland, Delaware, that were, that were slave states, but they were still in the Union. These states already had a precarious position within the Union, which might turn into openly joining the Confederacy if the direction of the war turned towards freeing slaves. Nevertheless... They signed the law in, in the District of Columbia. Okay, we're no more slavery in the District of Columbia. Slave catchers, you know, stay out of the District of Columbia. We don't want the District of Columbia to become a war zone. These slaves that made it to D.C. were the first ones to be legally recognized as free during the Civil War. Woot, woot. Too bad they couldn't join the Union Army and fight to free other slaves. Another problem that Lincoln is running into is that by the time we get into the spring of 1862, volunteering for the Union Army has just dried up. It's not happening anymore. But things are not going well militarily for the Union Army. In fact, uh, by, in the summer of 1862, uh, the Union suffers a string of defeats in the, uh, in the Virginia theater. And Lincoln needs more manpower. What about the tens and hundreds of thousands of escaped slaves we keep talking about? Well, from the beginning of the war, African-Americans had been trying to volunteer for the Union Army. Uh, not so much that they, they care about preserving the Union, but because they don't want to abandon relatives in the South. They look at the Union Army as a way to get into the South, get back home for a, a lot of these, uh, these volunteers who had escaped from slavery and still had families in slavery. And said, yeah, put, give me a uniform, give me a gun, point me south, let me go free my family. There were others who were motivated, of course, by ending slavery. But the Union Army, during the first year or so of the war, was not accepting their services. At least not with legal success. There were some Union commanders, like David Hunter in the Carolinas and John Fremont out in Missouri, who were trying to, uh, to form um, units of African-Americans. But in every case, Lincoln said, no, you can't do that. Yet by the summer of 1862, the Union government was getting rather desperate. You kind of have to put yourself in, in the position of Lincoln and Congress in Washington, D.C. in 1862. The Union Army's not doing well. The Confederate Army's on the move. It looks like the Confederate Army might just walk, march right into Washington, D.C., capture Lincoln and Congress, and, and they don't want that. With that terror on the horizon, Congress enacts two huge new policies regarding former slaves, a second Confiscation Act and the Militia Act. The second Confiscation Act went a step further, a huge step further, uh, than the first Confiscation Act in that it said, okay, we've got hundreds of thousands of enslaved people who have escaped from slavery. They claim to be free. Uh, they have essentially freed themselves. They want to join the Union Army. We need their services. There's no way physically we can return them to slavery. So, okay, we will admit that these folk are, are free. And they were as a practical matter because there wasn't anything Lincoln or Congress could do to stop them from escaping. This act made it very clear that the intention was not to end slavery, as it did not even free all of the slaves. What it actually said was, Any slaves who have escaped from slaveholders loyal to the Confederacy, 
any pro-Confederate slaveholders who are using their slaves in support of the Confederacy, those slaves are now free. And because of the Militia Act? If you want to, if you can help us out here, you can join the Union Army because we really need your services. And Lincoln, again, with some reservation, signs both of these acts into law. Uh, and now it's his job as president to enforce these acts. As it turns out, that was actually the purpose and reasoning behind the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, in fact, what the Emancipation Proclamation really was, was uh, an enforcement mechanism for the Second Confiscation Act. This enforcement was necessary because... The Second Confiscation Act was very ambiguous with its classifications of pro-Union versus pro-Confederate. There's a lot of slaveholders, especially in the border states, that are claiming to be pro-Union. Even in places like Tennessee and southern Louisiana and northern Virginia, which by that time were back under Union control, Slaveholders there were claiming to be pro-Union. I'm for the Union, uh, so I'm not a Confederate slaveholder, so I get to keep my slaves, right? And Lincoln tells them, right, you, you can keep your slaves. Well, under the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln says, okay, this is how I'm going to enforce the Second Confiscation Act. I can't put every slaveholder in the country on trial. That's just not going to work to figure out whether they're pro-Confederate or anti-Confederate. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to say that any slaveholders within Confederate lines, I'm going to call those pro-Confederate slaveholders, and I'm going to declare all your slaves free. Any slaves belonging to slaveholders in Union-held territory, in the border states, in Tennessee, in southern Louisiana, in northern Virginia, Uh, coastal areas of the Carolinas where the Union had taken some territory, those slaveholders in those areas, we're going to call you pro-Union, and you can keep your slaves. So that's how we're going to deal with this for the moment. And African-Americans, you know, we really need your services, so please come join the Union Army. Another reason for this eagerness to get black soldiers was fear of having to institute a draft. America had never had a national draft. It only ever existed at the state militia level, yet both sides were struggling to get new volunteers. By this time, the Confederacy had already resorted to a draft, and this draft was very, very unpopular. So the Union government hoped that by allowing black soldiers to fight, they could avoid resorting to a national draft. While this did get the Union army tens of thousands of new soldiers, some of whom were still forced to free themselves because they were in pro-Union territory. This did not foresee the fact that thousands of white Union soldiers would desert, seeing that the war had now turned explicitly towards emancipation and the end of slavery. And by the spring of 1863, Lincoln asks Congress to institute a draft act, which he signs into law. That's when the riots start, particularly in the summer of 1863, which Professor Williams spends a lot of his book emphasizing. Anti-draft riots break out all over the North. Uh, In cities like Boston, Detroit, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, um, and the biggest one in New York 
uh, lasted a whole week in, uh, in July of 1863. Provoked by the fear of black people moving north, these riots generally targeted black northerners. What we think uh, that at least 100, maybe more African-Americans were murdered during the, uh, the, the New York draft riots. Uh, others were killed in other cities uh, during, uh, during the riots. To deal with this violence, cities and municipalities started paying up to a year's wages to get people out of the draft. This, alongside the desertions that prompted the draft in the first place, further put the responsibility of the war effort onto the shoulders of black soldiers. Even as a limited extension of emancipation causes both a draft and anti-draft riots in the North, Northern sentiment towards ending slavery starts to shift. But as we get in 1863, there are increasing numbers of Northerners who are worried about increasing numbers of African-Americans coming north. Uh, who, they're escaping from the South. They're escaping to Union lines. The Army can't take care of them. They can't feed them. They're sending them further north. And you begin to see this argument coming from the abolitionist community uh, and from African-Americans themselves in the North. They say, well, why are African-Americans escaping from the South? It's because they don't like slavery, that they don't want to be slaves. How about this? If you end slavery, they won't need to escape to the North. Maybe if we end slavery they'll stay in the South. They won't have a reason to escape. They won't have slavery to escape from. And so increasingly, white Northerners are coming around to this idea of, well, yeah, maybe if we freed the slaves, they would stay in the South instead of escaping in, into the North in, in by the hundreds of thousands as we get into the later war years. Ironically, the shift towards supporting ending slavery in the North is largely for the benefit of whites in the North, not for uh, not to benefit uh, African-Americans. Though at this point, there were still many Northern whites who were against fighting a freedom war. At this point, it's kind of inevitable. Really, it was from the beginning. And, uh, and African-Americans themselves saw that uh, and made it a war against slavery long before Lincoln or Congress or whites in the North viewed it as a freedom war. African-Americans viewed it as a freedom war and were making it a freedom war by escaping slavery in such large numbers. And of course, that only the rate of those uh, escapes uh, increases as African-Americans join the Union Army, as they add their strength to Union forces. As, and as a result, Union armies become more increasingly victorious. Uh, that's just increasing the numbers of escaping slaves putting more pressure to end slavery. In fact, where the Emancipation Proclamation fell short of freeing slaves, slaves themselves took it upon themselves to institute a massive wave of self-emancipation. It, it was not uncommon for uh, enslaved people in places like Kentucky and Missouri and Maryland and southern Louisiana, where the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply. I mean, these slaves were still supposed to be enslaved. But they would escape to 
Union Army camp saying, hey, I escaped from Alabama or Georgia or, uh, or Arkansas or somewhere behind Confederate lines. So the Emancipation Proclamation applies to me, right? And they say, well, yeah, right. And they didn't know where these folks escaped from. They didn't know, uh, they didn't have any way of telling whether or not they'd escaped from Kentucky or Missouri or Alabama or Mississippi. Uh, and so enslaved people to whom the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply were using it to free themselves, and increasingly so as we go through the later war years. Something pretty significant about the Civil War was that it extended through an election year. 1864 was a presidential election. But because this podcast episode is focused on slave self-emancipation, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of the highlights of the election of 1864. If you're interested in taking a deeper dive into the politics of 1864, check out this episode's show notes, where Dr. Williams takes a much deeper dive into the complications of the politics of 1864. The first thing to know is that Abraham Lincoln, in his re-election campaign, was being kind of flaky. He was not running as a Republican, but rather on something that he called the Union Ticket, which he was doing in order to build a coalition between the Democrats who supported the war and Republicans. When I call Lincoln flaky, this is in reference to the way that he never really took a firm stance about emancipation or any further measures of equality for black people after the Civil War. The Emancipation Proclamation was not necessarily constitutional. It was essentially a presidential executive order that the Supreme Court had the ability to strike down as unconstitutional. And Lincoln never took a firm stance saying that the Emancipation Proclamation was constitutional, which left space for the Supreme Court to strike it down later. In addition, when he did take a firmer stance towards emancipation, he still sometimes spoke in private and in public about an idea to establish an apprenticeship program for free blacks in the South with their former owners, which would still leave them in servitude in the South indefinitely. Now, Lincoln's attitude was very reflective of the political climate, because in this election, there were actually three political parties running. On one side were the Radical Democrats, whose entire platform was to end slavery and ensure political and social equality for black Americans after the war. On the other side, there were the anti-war Democrats and some Republicans, whose platform was maintaining the old way, essentially keeping the Constitution the way that it used to be and ending the war without touching the issue of slavery. which was actually a relatively popular opinion in the North, which put Lincoln's re-election in jeopardy. This seemed to put the 13th Amendment at risk. And this time I'm talking about the 13th Amendment that ended slavery. Well, at least that kind of slavery, but that's a story for another day. By 1864, the 13th Amendment had passed the Senate, but not the House yet, and if the anti-war Democrats were to win, it was feared that... 13th Amendment would not pass. Though former slaves had dismantled the institution of slavery so thoroughly in the South that there was no way America could return to the old way and the old institution of slavery as it once was. But the Radical Democrats were still so fearful of what would happen if 
Abraham Lincoln was not elected, that they dropped out of the race, and Lincoln managed to win the 1864 election. In fact, uh, he only wins the election by a questionable 10% margin at best. And taking that as a referendum, the, uh, the House of Representatives in January of 1865, a couple of months after the election, does finally pass the 13th Amendment and send it out to the states for ratification. But it only passes with 15 Democrats voting in favor of it, giving uh, the 13th Amendment only a two-vote margin of victory in the House of Representatives. Uh, but nevertheless, it's passed the Senate, it's passed the House, it's sent out to the states for ratification. But the war is not quite over yet. won't be for a few months, but slaves have escaped in such large numbers by this time that slavery is in fact dead. I mean, there are, uh, I, I can read you quotes out of my book from uh, slaveholders in Tennessee, in Arkansas, in Alabama, most of whose slaves had escaped. Even the slaves who were staying put were not as easily controlled as they used to be. And so they're saying, well, slavery as an institution basically is dead. You know, we've, we've got to give it up. While Lincoln struggled in the North to put legal weight behind ending the institution, the slaves themselves had already declared to be over, the hundreds of thousands of black soldiers in the Union Army were having a rough time. As the Confederate Army dehumanized and massacred them, the Union Army would not treat them as equals, and harshly punished any efforts on their part to seek equal treatment. Yeah, very, very much so. That there, there was uh, the Fort Pillow massacre. Uh, it's probably the most famous. Uh, during which, after the uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and a force of uh, mounted infantry and cavalry uh, in the Confederate Army overwhelmed Fort Pillow on the Mississippi River, manned uh, not only by African-Americans, most of whom were former slaves, but also uh, white soldiers from Tennessee, white Southerners who were serving in the Union Army. Uh, and there were about 300 of them guarding the fort, and they were almost all wiped out. There were, after they tried to surrender, they were wiped out. That's why they, they called it a massacre. You found much the same happening at uh, the Battle of the Crater in, uh, in 1864. Uh, so they, these were just a couple of uh, the Battle of Olusty in northern Florida, just, uh, you know, just to name you know, three examples, but uh, a lot of that went on. It was uh, very difficult for African-American soldiers to surrender to Confederate soldiers. Black soldiers did not take this lying down, and as word of what happened at Fort Pillow spread around, black soldiers became willing to massacre Confederate troops back. But Confederate troops had the benefit of white Union soldiers stopping black soldiers from killing them. While they were being targeted and slaughtered by the Confederate Army, they were also not being treated as equals within Union ranks. Under the Militia Act, only whites could serve as officers in black regiments. There were a few black officers in uh, things like the medical corps, uh, but uh, in combat roles, blacks could not serve as officers. This is another kind of strange aspect about the formation of black regiments in the Union Army. The Union Army was not real careful about who they appointed to command these regiments. Uh, you would think that the Union Army might have a stake in saying, well, Anybody who commands 
a, a, a regiment of black soldiers. We want the officers, the white officers in those regiments to be fully on board with the concept of blacks serving in the Union Army, right? Well, they didn't do that. There was no board that examined these folks to ask them what their attitudes were toward black soldiers. There were some white officers who took command of black regiments uh, and black companies just for promotion, just because they wanted higher pay and a higher rank, not because they supported the concept of black serving in the Union Army. And so uh, blacks had to, had to suffer under officers like that a lot of times. Um, there were some officers who were fully on board with not only blacks serving in the Union Army, but emancipation and equal rights for blacks, like uh, Robert Google Shaw, for example. But he tended to be the exception rather than the rule, unfortunately. Uh, there were a lot of officers that African-Americans served under uh, that they didn't get very good treatment from. Also, uh, blacks didn't get the same pay as whites. White soldiers were supposed to get about $13 a month. Black soldiers ended up only getting $10 a month. And even and a clothing allowance was actually taken out of, out of that that wasn't taken out of pay for, uh, for white soldiers. And so that was uh, something that was galling to African-Americans. Here they were, they joined the Union Army. Uh, they, were, they were soldiers. Uh, a lot of them were in combat roles, fighting and dying at places like, uh, uh, like Fort Wagner, for example, and they weren't being paid the same as, uh, as white soldiers. In protest against that, there were some black soldiers that just refused to serve, who deserted the Union Army, uh, who asked for discharges for the Union Army, uh, who stacked arms and mutinied, and uh, sometimes were shot for that. Uh, there was one, uh, one Union officer, a fellow by the name of uh, Colonel Montgomery, who uh, would shoot black soldiers in his, under his command himself, personally, for the least offense. Uh, there, was a, there was a sergeant who led a mutiny in, uh, in another regiment who was uh, court-martialed and sentenced to death just for protesting the, uh, the unequal pay that African-Americans were getting. On top of that, many slaves had fled from plantations that the emancipation did not end slavery on, and they couldn't forget about their families who had not been freed. A lot of times they would get uh, letters from their, uh, from their families saying how tough things were, that we're starving, uh, that we can't get any, uh, that any money. You know, we're still being held in slavery. We're trying to get to you. But, uh, and a lot of times they would be caught by slave patrols who would drag them back to, to the plantations, drag them back to their slaveholders. These soldiers would then leave Union lines to go get their families, which, alongside their protests for equal pay, disrupted military operations to the point where Congress had to extend emancipation to their families and recognize black and white soldiers as deserving of equal pay. Towards the very, very end of the war, Congress freed the families of Union soldiers and required equal pay for black and white soldiers with back pay. But there was even discrimination in that law. Uh, the law said that full back pay equality would only apply to soldiers who were free at the beginning of the war. 
for those who had been enslaved, that back pay provision would not apply. One of the chapters of Black Reconstruction by Du Bois is called Back Towards Slavery. And even after freeing themselves, fighting and dying in the Union Army, while not even being considered equal to their fellow white soldiers, that is very much what happened. Andrew Johnson carries Lincoln's post-war policies into effect, particularly the policy of uh, what was called the 10% plan. Under that 10% plan, as soon as 10% of anyone who had voted in the slave states in 1861 took an oath of allegiance to the Union, then that state was readmitted to the Union. Uh, They could send representatives to Congress. They were back in the Union again. And they could essentially do what they want with former slaves. And that's what, that's what they started doing. As we get into late 1865, early 1866, former slave states are uh, passing laws that virtually re-enslave African Americans. These uh, laws were sometimes referred to as the Black Codes. There were vagrancy laws under which African Americans could be picked up by the law and essentially auctioned off back into enforced labor for violation of what were called these vagrancy laws. And in no slave state, a former slave state constitution, were there provisions for voting rights for African Americans. And it wasn't just voting rights. Citizenship was also determined on a state-by-state basis, and no southern states, and even very few northern states, allowed citizenship and voting to Black Americans. But in the few states where Black Americans could vote, though they were few in number, they were enough to swing an election towards Republicans, because they generally voted Republican. So, having already demonstrated their political power in the North, and their willingness to vote in their insistence and demands for voting rights in the South, Congress seriously considered and put pressure on President Johnson to consider extending citizenship to all black people and voting rights to all black men. This led to, in the years after the Civil War, both the 14th and 15th Amendment. For with the 14th Amendment, anyone who is born or naturalized in the United States is a citizen of the United States. Congress had never, in fact, the federal government had never defined who a citizen was before that point. Uh, So with the 14th Amendment, African-Americans are defined as citizens. Additionally, with the 15th Amendment, the right to vote shall not be denied citizens uh, on account of race, creed, or previous condition of servitude. Well, that would seem to settle it, right? African-Americans have the right to vote. But the problem with the 15th Amendment was there wasn't really any enforcement mechanism. In fact, uh, Charles Sumner, of Massachusetts, who was uh, very much on board with trying to guarantee African-American voting rights, would not support the 15th Amendment because he didn't consider it strong enough. He was holding out for a stronger amendment that would more enforcefully and effectively guarantee black voting rights. And of course, he wasn't able to get it. As we get into the early 1870s, former slave states begin to pass laws restricting African-American voting rights despite 14th, 15th amendments. Um, Things like uh, the eight box ballot law 
in Arkansas, where your vote only counts if you pick the right box. Now, of course, that only applied to African-Americans. Uh, there's also uh, literacy tests. Uh, most African-Americans couldn't read or write. Of course, there were a lot of whites that couldn't read or write either, but those laws were only applied to African-Americans. By the time we get, and of course, that sort of thing continues, by the time we get into the early 20th century, there are grandfather clauses that you're only eligible to vote if your grandfather was eligible to vote. All sorts of laws like that that are designed to keep African-Americans from voting. And Northerners are sort of okay with that. Because remember, Northerners had not gone to war initially for Blacks. They had gone to war to you know, keep the cotton states in the Union. This clear dropping the ball on ensuring social and political equality for Black people after the Civil War continues through the end of the century. And it turns out that just like during the Civil War, Whatever freedom they carve out for themselves in the post-war freedom, that's going to be of African-Americans making, uh, not of, uh, of whites. Before we end, we have to talk about the title of the book, I Freed Myself. It's a quote from an incredible former slave by the name of Duncan Winslow. The title for the book kind of came as I was, uh, as I was working on the book. I, I was always, in going through my research, searching for a title that would accurately reflect what I was trying to do in the book, make the point that African-Americans were key to their own freedom. And when I came across uh, Duncan Winslow, his story, here's a guy who uh, had been enslaved in Tennessee. He escaped from slavery during the war, joined the Union Army, uh, fought for his own freedom, was wounded for his own freedom, almost died for his own freedom. Uh, at Fort Pillow, he was, uh, he was shot wounded in the arm, wounded in the leg, pretended to, uh, to, to be dead just so Confederate soldiers would pass him by, and they did. He kind of rolled over into some bushes and hid there until dark, made his way down the hill to the, to the uh, Mississippi River, and was picked up by a Union gunboat, got transported to a Union military hospital, uh, spent uh, several weeks recovering there. And then after the war, uh, settled in Illinois, became a farmer there, uh, sold produce from door to door. Uh, and in, in Illinois, African-Americans had the right to vote. So one day, uh, and he, his arm that he was wounded in, it was so badly wounded that he lost the use of that arm, or at least the effective use and full use of that arm for life. As this Republican politician, I presume it was a Republican, he just said a politician, was making the rounds, campaigning for for votes. Uh, He made the comment to Duncan Winslow that, uh, hey, come election day, you know, don't forget uh, that uh, uh, we we freed you people. And Duncan Winslow kind of raised his mangled arm and showed it to the man and said, uh, it looks to me like I, I freed myself. Wow. What a moment in history. Duncan Winslow, a Union Army veteran, faced with a white man who may or not have even fought in the Union Army, which very reluctantly even came around to the idea of emancipating slaves and was still hesitant to extend political and social equality to black Americans. Faced with this man, Duncan Winslow, 
rightly took offense and put him in his place, showing evidence that nobody but himself was responsible for his freedom. That sums up the attitude that I want to portray in this book. Uh, I think that's the story I'm trying to tell from the perspective of African-Americans, from the perspective of their struggles, the way that they viewed the war as it progressed, as they took possession of it, as they made it a freedom war over the objections of, of, of Northern whites, as they continued to struggle for freedom, to make freedom real in the post-war period. That's the message I'm trying to convey. And I thought that uh, Duncan Winslow's attitude and experience just summed that, summed that up perfectly. Even, even uh, most fortunate to be able to get in touch uh, descendants of Duncan Winslow. In the, the last couple of pages of the book, I mentioned uh, his grandsons. Here, Professor Williams reads a paragraph from his book, including a quote from a letter written between Henry and Rollins Winslow. And it gets him choked up. But I was not about to edit out such a genuine moment. I'll just read you uh, this paragraph that um, tells the story of Rollins and Henry. I said, they stood on the shoulders of men like Duncan Winslow, a former slave, a Union veteran, wounded survivor of Port, Fort Pillow, who worked out his life as a farmer in Illinois uh, and never learned to sign his name. But his grandsons, Rollins and Henry, although they went to segregated schools in the 1920s and were denied access to uh, the local public library, grew up with a chest full of books and encouragement to read. Both eventually earned graduate degrees. Rollins entered the ministry. Uh, Henry went into teaching. And for their opportunities, they always credited their grandfather, Duncan. Uh, and this is the quote from the letter that one brother wrote to the other uh, back in, uh, in 1986. They always credited their grandfather, Duncan, quote, and the blood offering he yielded. And the blood offering he yielded to the end that generations of excuse me, I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, that generations of his progeny might have access to the blessings of learning and liberty. Sorry, that still chokes me up. But I don't know. It's I spent a lot of time with these people, and they're, they're very real to me, even after all these years. Once again, that was Professor David Williams, and the story of emancipation goes well beyond Abraham Lincoln, as thousands of people like Duncan Winslow risked their lives and freed themselves, which forced the government to very reluctantly acknowledge their freedom. And the struggle very clearly continues today, as... Black and brown people often have to struggle and strain before the government enacts change. Thank you so much for tuning in. I encourage you to check the show notes for links to all the books discussed, to share the knowledge, and to check out our Facebook and our website. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>